I only hope that we never lose sight of one thing that was all started by a mouse. Hello, everyone out there in podcast land. This is the Beyond the Mouse podcast, the podcast for all things Disney for NPR Illinois Community Voices and for the Front Row Network. I'm your host, Craig. I'm joined today by my co-host, Miss Vanessa Ferguson. Hello. And Mr. Brett Rutherford. Hello. I... I am so excited for this interview today. We're not going to spend too much time up here up front because I am just so excited to tell you that we are going to speak to Evangeline Lilly today. Uh, and yes. we, we are so excited. Of course, we know her as Hope Van Dyne and the Wasp. We, of course, know her as Kate in Lost. But what you might not know about her is her writing passion and her book series, The Squicker Wonkers. We're going to talk all about all of that with her. We're so excited to get to speak with Evangeline Lilly today. Brett, your thoughts on the interview we have coming up? Um, I have no words other than um, I can't wait for the experience and I can't wait for it to be over because I'm sure it's going to be amazing. Yeah. Vanessa? Well, um, for those who probably don't know, Craig read us the first book of the Squicker Wonkers, and it was probably one of the best moments of my life, having uh, Craig read to me and Brett. Um, I really enjoyed the book, and I can't wait to talk to her about this book series that she has. Absolutely. Let's just get into it, guys. Uh, Here is Evangeline Lilly. Welcome to Beyond the Mouse, an NPR Illinois Community Voices podcast. Evangeline Lilly, thank you so much for joining us today. It is such a pleasure. Thank you so much for reaching out. Absolutely. Absolutely. And of course, I want to dive right into the questions. And I I wanted to ask you about your acting career. But before we do that, I really wanted to actually start with your writing career. Because listening to your previous interviews, you've been quoted as saying that writing is really, truly your passion so I wanted to ask, what, what is it about writing that speaks to you creatively? And, and did you start that at a young age? How did writing come to you as a passion? Um, I think unbeknownst to me, writing was always a passion. Because when I look back, I can actually track back and realize that I've been doing it since I was extremely young. Like I, I, my first ever published poem was in my school newsletter when I think I was in the third grade. And, um, and then when I was about 12, I got really into journaling. And when I was in my sort of like angsty young teens, I was into kind of dark poetry and emoting on paper and all the angst of teen, teen life. And then, um, and then as I got older, as I got into adulthood, it started to really take shape and, um, I used to be an extra on film sets. I would do extra work, you know, where you're sort of sitting in the background of the scene. And that's how I paid my way through university. And um, and I remember just sitting on sets and thinking, oh, I've got all these, like just being in this environment, I've got all these ideas for movies or TV shows. And I wonder how you do that. So I got out a book from the library, kids. You've never heard of a library. <laughs> um, and I, and I learned formatting for script writing and I did it on full scat paper with like a pen and paper. I am a dinosaur. Uh, you said age before beauty, I will go first. <laughs> and, um, and, I, and I just like, I, just, I tried my hand at a lot of different things. Um, and so I have 
a lifetime of writing banked, either in paper form or in digital form, as I eventually got with the times. And um, I just never did anything with it. It was just for me. And as I went through my acting career and I found myself increasingly dissatisfied or struggling with feeling like this is not you know, the passion of my life. This is a great job, but it's not the passion of my life. Um, I started asking myself, well, then what could that possibly be? And the answer I found was whatever you do when nobody's asking you to do it or paying you to do it, that's the passion of your life. And I was able to recognize that my whole life I have written in all different manners without anyone ever asking me to or paying me to. And it always has given me such joy and just filled my soul with such contentment and it's, it energizes me. You know, it's a funny thing. Like I can come away from 12 hours of writing and instead of being drained the way I would be after 12 hours of any other kind of work, I'm just electric. Like I feel like, like I have all this energy pent up and I need to get it out. I'm like, but I just worked for 12 hours. And, yeah. and I think that that's the thing I'm following. That's great. And of course we, as an audience, we get to, uh, be the beneficiaries of that passion for writing because you did uh, put pen to paper and then you did bring out a series of books. And Vanessa has our first question about the Squicker Wonkers. Yes. So um, we absolutely adore this uh, children's book series about the characters known as the Squicker Wonkers. And so we wanted to ask you, how did this idea come to you? Because it's really an interesting uh, name for this group of odd creatures and, and they're interesting characters themselves. The idea was first, uh, um, the seed of the idea came to me when I was 14 years old and I was really into Zeus, Dr. Zeus. But I was into him not as like a little kid who was like, oh yeah, I like Dr. Zeus. I was into him as a young teen who was like, this guy was a genius. He was incredible. And what he was doing was not just putting cute pictures to cute words. He was doing something um, almost subversive and and really uh, intentional in his children's books. And I was super impressed. But I also loved his rebellious spirit. And I sort of found myself drawn to the fact that if Zeus didn't have a word to rhyme, he would just make one up. And I was like, this guy is really cool. <laughs> like, anyone who's got you know enough courage to say, well, if I don't have a word, I'll just make one up is um, somebody who I want to model myself after. And I started playing with making up my own words. And in doing that, um, there was this one word that really felt delicious on my tongue and it just sort of stuck and it was the squicker wonkers. And so I asked myself, well, what's squicker wonker? And this poem just sort of fled, flooded into my head. And it was a poem about a group of outcast, um, traveling, um, vagabonds essentially who sort of do this naughty thing they play this trick on this little girl and it works out to their benefit um which really speaks to also my edward gory passion when i was little which which edward gory was a fantastic children's book writer who had a very dark slant to his writing everything was always a little bit macabre and i um and i just had this poem and I read it to my mom and she was like you should try to publish that that's really good and I was like you're my mom you think everything I do is really good <laughs> I don't trust that for a minute and I just left it alone and then eventually um 
eventually when I decided I actually wanted to try to publish something um, was when the Squicker Wonkers morphed from a cute standalone little poem into this 20 book series that I'm now trying to publish and um, working diligently at with my illustrator, uh, Rodrigo Bastos Didier in um, Sao Paulo, Brazil. That's all wonderful. It's so funny. Um, not even planned. I yesterday read the Lorax with my son for the first time. And so he's experiencing that. Um, and I'm reliving that tale and, you know, that environmental message put right into the middle of this children's story that he absolutely loved. We read it, we ended up reading it like five or six times yesterday because he just loved the creativity and the words and it, it yeah. totally tracks with what you were just talking about. Well, I find that for me, the, the two sort of realities I have to keep in mind when I'm writing this series is that there are all of these really powerful, important, larger messages that I've woven into the story that I think uh, older kids and adults might be picking up on. But there's also just a silly, fun romp of a story that's meant to just be entertaining and fun for little ones and for the adults. And um, that for me is my, you know, hat tip to, to um, Zeus and my absolute reverence for him and how he was able to, to do both of those things. Yeah. Brett, you had a question. First of all, my friends, Jen and Rich from Sherwood Park, Alberta, say hello. <laughs> I met, yeah, I met them at D23 Expo in 2017. Insert the small world joke here. But anyway, Sherwood yeah. Park is pretty close to your hometown. Yeah, really Catholic. close. Really right, close. Yeah. They said that if you buy, if you get uh, coffee in uh, Sherwood Park, it's still hot by the time you get to Fort Saskatchewan, right? So, <laughs> <laughs> That's true. That's probably it's, true. Although I wouldn't know because I never drank coffee when I was there. <laughs> <laughs> well, you you said that Rodrigo Bastos Didier is the illustrator. Well, how did your how did your collaboration begin? How did you meet someone who was working, um, you know, so far away? It's such an incredible story. I love telling this story because. Um, Rodrigo Bastos-Tidier started out as an Evangeline Lilly fan and he was on my Facebook fan page and I didn't know this I had no you know I I didn't I didn't know him and I, I hadn't necessarily some of my fans I've really kind of zeroed in on because they're there a lot and, and we interact a lot but he was a quieter guy and I I had no idea who he was but all of a sudden out of nowhere he posted to my page um basically fan art of the Squicker Wonkers. So I had already done one book, the pre-show, with um, Johnny Fraser Allen, who was a Weta Workshop employee um, in New Zealand when I was working on The Hobbit. And Rodrigo had seen it and he had just created this fan art. And I was blown away by what he'd done, both first on the level of like, people are making fan art of my book. Like, this is so exciting because I'm so used to seeing fan art of like the big tent pole machines that I'm a part of, you know, and to have it be like something I created and someone was inspired enough to want to recreate it was incredible. And then he happened to also do an amazing job and just be a, a hyper talented artist. But at the time I really wasn't looking for another artist. And also what he'd done was very adult for the series. It was really dark and very sophisticated and I was like oh if I ever turned it into a more kind of an older series he'd be a great artist but not a fit and then I went down to Brazil for a comic con 
And oh, wow. Joe was bold enough and cool enough. I had written him back on Facebook, of course, and complimented and told him thank you. But he managed to not only come in and find a way to meet me behind like backstage because he knew the people that were running it. And he came fully prepared with like a portfolio of art and showed me everything he, he had done. But he also, I found out that night, was instrumental in actually getting me to that con. So oh. he had orchestrated oh, wow. Wow. <laughs> he had orchestrated this whole thing. And he didn't know, but I had been looking for a new artist for two years at that point. I had been combing oh, wow. the internet. I had been looking all over the world. I had tried on a few different artists who did sample work for me and it wasn't right. And I'm really, really dedicated about the art of the stories. I think it's the, the such and just as important as the words. And so I had yet to find somebody who did it, did something or presented me with something that I thought was a good fit. And um, just his sheer dedication and talent made me, okay, I have to give this guy a shot. And so we worked for about six months together with me trying to give him visual references and talking back and forth. We spent hours and hours and hours talking, trying to give him the sense of what I wanted to create for the series going forward. And, and he showed me a final piece six months later and said, here it is. This is my sample. What do you think? Can we work together? And I was like, no, <laughs> no, it's not right. And so I was like, oh my God, I'm the most horrible person in the world because it still wasn't right, but he dedicated six months to me. And he was amazing in that moment. And I've come to know him now. We've known each other for years now. And I've learned that that character is so true to him. He just said to me, listen, I didn't know how to draw a stick man when I was born. I didn't know how to do any of this artwork that I can now do, you know, and he's, he's a formidable artist. Um, I can learn anything. So just give me more time and I'll figure it out. I'll crack it. And I was like, man, this kid is unreal. <laughs> so I gave him two more months and he came up with another sample that was definitely suddenly feeling like it was in the world. It wasn't where we ended up. We still worked another four months to get it exact, but I was, I saw an inkling of the idea and now he's become equally as much a master of the world as I am. Now, when he illustrates a book, there's a lot less babysitting on my end and a lot more kind of excitement of anticipation, like what's he gonna deliver? Because I know he's got it, he's just nailed it. Wow, that's so cool. Such mm -hmm. a cool story about a, a creative person coming to you and then and just being able to work that in together. Vanessa? Yeah, well, I'm so impressed with that story because it speaks so much about like, creating your own destiny and actually I have a, a question kind of along that path so um I thoroughly enjoyed watching your past interviews and you're just delightful and real and authentic and um so fun but thank you very welcome um but there's one interview that just I I was kind of stunned by um you're in an interview with Craig Ferguson and you say you'd like to be a writer and that you've written uh, Squicker Wonkers, but you haven't published it yet. And I'm sitting there and I'm like, oh, but Evangeline, you did. Like, you did it. You did. Like, I'm talking to past <laughs> you. And so I was wondering, looking back, did you know that you would get the book published or, or were you unsure? Did you have hurdles to face? You know, what, what was that like? Man, writing was... 
you know, I want to say a pipe dream for a long time before I actually tried to publish. And yet I feel like pipe dreams are what we associate with like adulthood when you kind of know it's not going to happen because you're already past that point. Um, when you're younger, like I was in my 20s, I think, still when I um, when I was on Ferguson and, and I quoted this quicker wonger's the old original poem I wrote when I was 14 years old, which is totally different than the book that, well, I mean, slightly different than the book that ended up being published. And um, I think at that age, it's, it just feels like the world is still so wide open and anything is possible. And you're just kind of throwing lines out, you know, and just sort of seeing like what happens. And I can firmly say that at 41, I don't feel that anymore. <laughs> it's like, I am in a completely different space where you start to feel like, okay, I have to be very intentional with my steps because I don't know how many more of them I've got. You know, and not, not that I'm like near the end of my life, but I feel like I'm in a different space now where I don't have, I have children, I have a spouse, I have already an established career or two or three. And I had it sort of like, okay, like what's next? Cause I see the time kind of moving faster all the time. But when I was on Ferguson and just playing and flirting with that awesome, delightful man, I think for me, it was just a spontaneous moment of being authentic and just saying what's in my heart. And I still find it very cool to look back and go, oh my God, I did it unreal I did it and I love that you just connected those two stories with like that story with Rodrigo's story because when he was doing that with me and and you know being so passionate about himself and what he would accomplish and what he could do I was just in awe of him I just thought man this is an incredible human being I wish I had that I wish I was like that and now I sort of feel like oh maybe I was a little bit like that when I was younger <laughs> I can, I would think so after watching that. Yeah. And yeah. I, I kind of wanted to ask a little bit more of, you know, we can really see in that video that you've kind of, in, in my mind, or at least watching it for the first time, uh, planting the seeds for what's to come. So, so now uh, this is my big hope that maybe in five years or so, we'll look back at this interview and uh, maybe you'll say something about the future. So I wanted to ask you, do you have, do you have anything, uh, other projects or a movie series, maybe, I don't know, anything that you want to mention now that in five years we can go back, see, she said it here too. Right. So I want to manifesting you know. today. Yeah, exactly. Um, well, I definitely have um, a few ideas that I mull around all the time in my mind, similar to how I used to just sort of play around with the squicker wonkers in my head. And one of them is um, I've always wanted to write nonfiction from my heart to other people's heart, you know, and just speak to people um, about things that have I've learned, ways that I've grown, challenges that I've had. Um, I love, in my life, I have been impacted by those types of books so many times. And every time I read one, I think, I'm so grateful this person wrote this book. And then I think, I wish, I would love to be able to touch someone else's heart the way this person has touched mine, sort of pay it forward. Um, so that's one of the things, definitely. And, and I have a... I have like so many things that I sleep, but like probably one of the ones that I'm really chewing on right now is a TV series that I've written, like not fully written, but 
I've outlined like four seasons and I, and it's been something I've been playing with for like 10 years, just keep going back to it and keep going back to it and working it and working it. And I, I feel like, Ooh, probably not right now, but maybe when my kids are older and they don't require so much of me and don't need mama's attention so much, then maybe, maybe. Yeah, that's wonderful. You know, it's, it's, you mentioned writing nonfiction that people can um, learn from or absorb and have that shared experience. Uh, even with the squicker wonkers and then also listening to those interviews, I feel like as a parent, uh, you've already taught me some lessons that I can appreciate and that I can learn. And it's interesting that you use the uh, parallels to Dr. Seuss because I actually um, thought of Grimm's fairy tales when I was thinking about Squicker Wonkers because you did say it, it, it has a bit of a darker edge to it. Um, what is it of your, I think kind of as parents, we tend to come up with our own parenting philosophy. Did you try to instill any of that into the poetry? Did you bring any of your own lessons or uh, how you feel about parenting into the Squicker Wonkers? Absolutely. Um, whether consciously or unconsciously, like I think there's a bit of both. But I, um, I can say that like one of the things that I, I, I'm very, very flattered that you would uh, mention Grimm. And I like to call the Squicker Wonkers um, cautionary tales for modern day breasts. Um, because I think one of the things we've gone away from in our society is holding children accountable. And I think that accountability is paramount to growing as a human being. And that if we're never told you are responsible for your actions and you're responsible for what comes of your actions, then um, I think we're unanchored. And I think children will feel very lost in the world and have a sense of like not really knowing their place um, in a good way, as opposed to in the know your place kid. And that's why I say modern cautionary tales or, you know, cautionary tales for modern day breaths, because it's not in the same spirit of saying, you know, you are bad, you are bad, you will be punished. But it's more in the spirit of saying, none of us are perfect. Nobody is perfect. Mommy's not perfect. Daddy's not perfect. There will not be a single character in any of these books that you will read that will feel perfect and that you will think, I wish I was like because they're all like you and they all have to face the fact that they make mistakes. And that if they don't look at those mistakes and learn from those mistakes, they'll keep making them again and again and again until they really get hurt. And, and the sort of adult underlying message in there that comes back around as the series evolves is that in that moment when you really get hurt by the thing that really needs to be worked on is probably when you'll be freed from it. Um, that's the moment when you're gonna probably really see it and then you'll let it go. And I know that from experience um, in my life, working on my own shadow self, you know, and, and facing all the icky bits of myself. And I think it's really important that we offer children a space to dialogue about the stuff that they're scared of within them. And I think we underestimate kids if we think that they're not feeling at very young ages shame over the ways that they fail us. 
And, um, and I think one of the best things about books and children is that it opens dialogue between parents and children that might not otherwise happen. And so I really, as a parent, believe very strongly in allowing my children to make mistakes, allowing them to get hurt, allowing them to go out in the big scary world and take risks so that they can come back to me and say, this happened and it hurt, or this happened and I was scared, or this happened and I felt really angry or ashamed. And then we can process that together. And like, you can just watch a child fill out, you know, they fill into them, they stand in their skin, instead of sort of somewhere outside of it, like, I'm not really sure. Um, So that's probably the biggest message for me I'm I'm like the opposite of a helicopter parent I'm like yeah put your hand in the fire because you're gonna learn real quick it's hot like (laughs) (laughs) and so that's really woven in those books a lot but you're giving everyone you're giving um your children uh you know something that I learned about in my 20s you know I'm like going you get them that you know that step that little you know advice that we that sometimes it takes a while to to learn on our when we're out on our own so yeah, it's good hopefully. for you that was great so Vanessa yes well that I first of all I just love that take on it and and also um with the squicker wonkers do you have a specific story that has been your favorite so far or do you enjoy mm-hmm. little bits of pieces of both I imagine it might be like uh, picking amongst your children you know <laughs> Yes and no. I mean, it's it's awful to say because I feel like it is, or like I shouldn't say it. What I'm a favorite, but I don't care. I'm going to because <laughs> um, I right now. So there are there are two physical books, and then there are four audiobooks that have been released. And I'm releasing audiobooks ahead of physical books. It's a whole thing. It'll probably take a while to explain, but. I, it's my theory and it's like the way I'm doing it. Um, and one of the reasons is just, I'm so eager to tell the stories and it takes a really long time to paint them. Mm-hmm. Um, but probably so far, my favorite out of the four audiobooks um, is The Demise of Andy the Arrogant. Yes. And yeah, really you do. <laughs> oh, it was so funny. I was just listening to it again. Um, and it's, it's really great. I, I decided because I was I was going on a run and I was like, I'm going to listen to it before the interview so I can have it in my head. Um, and I really decided that you could sell tickets reading random tweets in the voice <laughs> of Andy the Arrogant because <laughs> because your Andy the Arrogant voice is just perfect. <laughs> Hard is, it's so hard to do male voices. Good, I have to get down on my boots and I sound ridiculous. But oh, I have so much fun making all of those voices. It's a hoot. It's my favorite. Like, that's the kind of acting that I love, which is just pure entertaining. Like, it's not emoting, it's not opening my soul and being vulnerable. It's just like being ha here I am and like you know just having people laugh or respond in any way shape or form um and so I have a lot of fun doing them but I think so I have a soft spot for Andy for a couple reasons one of them is it just like poured out of me it was the easiest one to write it just came so naturally which was so weird because it was the only one so far that um I hadn't like fully mapped out I sort of didn't 
know exactly where I was. I knew kind of what was going to happen, but like not every beat. And then it just poured out of me and it was so easy. So that's a delight. And then when I showed them to my older boy, who has historically always been anything to do with mom is lame and therefore would intentionally just to get under my skin, be like, yeah, school problems are all right. Okay. You know, he's just like Mr. Cool Pants attitude. And then, but I won him over with Andy. He listened to the demise of Andy the Arrogant and he like, he's like, can we listen to that again? He wanted over and over and over and he was laughing. And afterwards he had to like put down his pride and be like, yeah, okay, mom, it's good. Really <laughs> <laughs> so I think wow. I'm biased because of that. You know, that was like, I got him. I got him. Yeah. Well, you sort of answered my next question, which was uh, because you have lent your voice to these as well, uh, at least the, the three acts um, after the prologue, is it nerve wracking to put voices to the people that you've, the, the creatures that you've already created? Or is it, is it like, I know you just said you enjoy that part of acting, but is it easy in your mind to come with those voices? Is that the voice that's in your head when you're writing this? Or does it, <laughs> Does it take a bit to get into that character and to understand where that character needs to be or who that character needs to be? Well, I mean, I love to do it and I think it's a lot of fun. It's probably the funnest thing I've ever done in my career. Um, but I have to say there are so many times, especially with the male voices, where I listen back and I go, oh, no, no, that's not the voice I hear in my head because I don't have that male register and I just can't get it right. And I'm a, so if I was a squicker wonker, I probably just stole another one of your questions, I'm sorry. But if I was a squicker wonker, I would be Patty the perfectionist. And that sounds sort of like a humble brag, but in, in the best and total, like it's the, it's a curse. Like I, I am a perfectionist to the point where it's unhealthy, where it's like, damaging where it's bad you know it's like really really over the top and so that's an exercise for me in letting go and just remembering that I have an idea in my head of exactly how it should sound and if I fall short of that exact idea that doesn't mean that I failed and that the book should never be released that it's okay it's probably still really fun and like just sort of oh this is such a hard thing for me to say it's like but like lowering my standards a little bit. Oh, just, ugh. but I have to learn to do that as when I'm my own, my own director and my own producer, um, because I am really my own worst critic. Um, so that's a challenge. The hardest voice, and we have yet to get to the demise of Greer the Greedy, but is Greer the Greedy, because Greer the Greedy doesn't speak, she scats. And I am, I am not a jazz musician. I'm not even any musician. Like I'm not music, I'm not a highly musical person. So that is like a corner I, you know, kind of put myself in where I'm like back against the wall going, I guess I have to learn to scat now. But then that's really fun because I realize, well, what a great challenge. I have to challenge myself to learn a new skill and figure it out if I want to honor my books. Yeah, it's yeah. gonna be like Ella Fitzgerald meets Evangeline, I think. It'll be really <laughs> I studied her. She is a woman. I've I've gone for a squicker wonkers recording and stood outside on the technician, the sound technician's patio with Ella Fitzgerald in my head for like 20 minutes, just going, okay, 
and like practicing and practicing and practicing just for like a three second sound bite that's in the background of somebody else's story. Cause I just, you know, I want to do right by Greer. Greer is my favorite character. So I want her to be amazing. Very cool. And we're definitely going to be looking forward to that. Um, I wanted to ask, um, so for our listeners who may not know, you did mention this. Um, could you tell us a little bit more about how many books are in this series and, and maybe what's in store? Maybe all those squicker walkers are going to meet up like a, like a big end game meetup or something or <laughs> <laughs> anything that you can tell us about the rest of the series? Yeah, I would be happy to. So the series originally was going to be 18 books, but um, as I really like dialed in on the outline, because I refuse to not have my end established before I begin. Um, the perfectionist, yeah. right? Yes. I also, I also worked on a TV show that did not have its end established when it began. <laughs> so I learned no that. idea what you're talking about. No, 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 no. <laughs> Um, but I, so the, the series will ultimately be 20 books and it'll be two series of 10 books. So the first series is called the Demise series. And so far we've had the demise of Sound of the Spoiled, the demise of Laura the Lazy, the demise of Andy the Arrogant. And I just wrote a fourth one, but it's a surprise who it is. So I won't tell you yet. And um, so basically we're, we're sort of um, doing like a dwindling party kind of Edward Gorey or like a, you know, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Um, we are, we're kind of knocking off our characters one by one. And then um, in true Squicker fashion, uh, we flip things on their head and we go to the Origins series where we learn about how each of these characters became Squicker Wonker puppets because the Squicker Wonkers are marionette puppets. And the pre-show or the prologue, the, the opening book, sort of introduces you to the Squicker Wonkers and shows you one of the Squicker Wonkers becoming a marionette puppet by revealing her vice in this test of character. And so we get to go through, and now that we're down to only one Squicker Wonker, sort of do this strange kind of, uh, what's the um, wrinkle in time, kind of turn around and we go back and we, and, and kind of start this journey again where the Squicker Wonkers, we get to see their, their origin story. And laced in those two series are all these Easter eggs to give you an idea of what the overall like larger story is that we're telling, which is essentially the story of Papa the Proud. Um, pride is such a unique vice. And ironically, I think even though it is one that can seem beautiful and can be beautiful, um, I think on the flip side, it is also one of the most dangerous because it's the one that is so hard for the person who has it to recognize. And all through this series, you see these characters recognizing their vice and, and realizing, oh gosh, I'm really spoiled or ooh, I think I'm too arrogant or whatever it is. Um, but Papa never seems to stumble. Papa never seems to have any moments where he is forced to face that he is too proud and that it's actually hurting him and the ones he loves. So it's really going to be the story of Papa in the end. And, and um, yeah, they're meant to be dark and delicious. They're, they're supposed to be kind of naughty and a little bit spooky, but also really fun and funny and um 
uh, you know, whenever I read them, I always am just thinking of the best way to make a kid laugh when they're listening um, and also kind of wrap them into the drama of them all so that the final punchline really gets them. Yeah. And, you know, I, um, I'm so grateful for this series. It's, it's so, it's such a delight to read. And then also as my son ages, we'll be able to get the the next book. And then I am going to be looking out. We're going to hold you to this, uh, this Great. nonfiction book as well. Um, oh. <laughs> because, uh, you know, because it, uh, I could talk to you all day about, I think, parenting philosophies and life lessons that you've learned. Um, but we want to be really respectful of your time. And we do want to, we wanted to ask some about your, your acting side of things as well. And we may have made allusion to this a little bit already, but you were in what became such a, a huge phenomenon in television. And this was earlier in your career being uh, the star of Lost. And how is that, what is that experience like as an actor going into uh, a network television show that's already a pretty big deal, but then it became something else. You know, it became, it was such, such a huge show. Uh, what, what is that like? And then, you know, you, did that a good precursor for your acting career later um, in joining up in Marvel and, and having another huge successful property uh, go forward? Well, either a precursor or um, just an early education or a predeterminer, which is sort of an interesting thought. Um, yeah, the Lost was the first film or television acting job I ever got. Um, I'd, I'd done extra work and I'd done a couple commercials to pay my way through university, but I wasn't actually, um, I wasn't actually aiming to be an actor. I was in university studying political science and um, international relations. And I was thinking I was going to become a diplomat or an ambassador or a humanitarian or a missionary. And so, you know, <laughs> it was like, I didn't even know how to stand on a mark, let alone how to stand on a red carpet and sort of play the persona of a celebrity. I had never really read magazines. I didn't watch Entertainment Tonight. Uh, it's amazing that's still going. Um, and I just wasn't, I was not prepared. I was not versed. I was not um, even like, like I think it's one thing if that happens and you've been pounding the pavement for years and wanting that and wishing for that and then it happens and it's like this moment and that's still hard. Like I believe I've watched, I've lovingly watched so many young talented actresses come up in the last 16 years of my career. And even the ones you can tell want this more than anything in the world, you just watch the weight of it when it happens to them. And I sort of from watch from the silence and think, oh God, Sometimes I, I want to just create like a specific guild within, within SAG that is just like my job is to go out and hang out with those young women as they're becoming stars and just take them by the hand and like give them all the advice I can give them and like support them and tell them you say no to that and you say no to that. And you <laughs> to that. Like, I, I get so fiercely protective because it was really shocking and really hard. And I think it was possibly maybe a little bit uh, more difficult being that um, it wasn't something that I had been sort of dreaming about mm -hmm. and preparing for. As somebody who was already a writer at that point, 
my favorite thing to do was to go into a cafe, sit in a corner for five or six hours, watch people and write and like get inspiration from watching strangers. I just love the tapestry of humanity and just watching it, all the interactions around me. And all of a sudden that, that way of being was stolen from me because I was being watched and I couldn't go anywhere where I wasn't being watched, let alone approached or photographed. Mm -hmm. And so I no longer was able to lift my eyes up and observe the world because I found myself trying not to be noticed all the time. And, and that was really painful on a deep soul level because I was a Canadian, young, balshy, bright-eyed young woman going like, good morning to everyone I knew. And then suddenly it was like, don't be noticed, don't be noticed, don't be noticed, don't see me, don't see me, don't see me. And, and that sort of making smaller, playing small was really difficult. Um, and it wasn't until after Lost ended that I was able to have enough breathing space to process it all and find guidance and find wisdom and find books that helped teach me and reach a place where I realized that um, you draw the thing you fear the most to you. And so if I would just stop fearing all that attention, maybe it wouldn't hurt so much. And I started learning how to reach a handout when a fan would approach me and say, hi, what's your name? Instead of, no, I'm not her. I just look like her. Goodbye. Um, and I started learning how to um, see projects not as like a cross to bear, but as potentially a way to sort of play and be creative with other artists and and explore my creative side instead of just a responsibility um and that's why I ended up I ended up retiring after loss and then going back and playing Tauriel and the Hobbit and then mm -hmm. um taking on the mantle of the wasp and um it was really a time where I was trying to see if if I changed how I felt inside, if it would just change the whole thing for me, if the whole experience would change. And it did. It very much did change. It's still not something that feeds my soul. It's extremely draining. That's why I still want to be a writer. <laughs> that feeds me. Um, but I have way less angst and way less fear and way less pain involved with the act of first of all being on set and playing a role and then being out in the world as a, as a celebrity you know as a public figure I hate that word I'm like it's weird calling yourself that <laughs> it's really weird it sounds so arrogant well but it, it's such a it's such a unique position that you're in because it it's it's an experience that none of us are are truly ever going to have and and I, I do have to say um it's incredible to me thinking back that that was your first acting job on Lost. I'm going back and I, I you know, once we uh, found out that uh, you were gracious enough to grant us this interview, I went back and I started watching that first season and people root for you immediately the second that you're on that screen. And it's because of this um, conviction that you have. It's just 
all of your roles that you've come to, uh, you you do such a marvelous job with the, and you don't need me to tell you that, but uh, you know, it's just, it's just, it's just, by the way, you're just so, you're just so great. And thank you for that. It's, it's such a nice, it's so nice to know that side of it and that, that struggle that you have. And, and we're grateful for you for sharing that. Um, Vanessa, I wanted to actually go to uh, you next because we were also gonna talk about a little bit about Marvel. Sure, well, Ant-Man and the Wasp was a big moment in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And it marked the first time a female hero was the titular hero in one of their films. So um, what does that mean for you? And can you speak to the experiences you had playing uh, Hope Van Dyne? Yes. So um, that was, it's so, it's actually really hard for me to like put into words still because I'm just, I'm realizing in the same way that it took me years after loss was finished to sort of process all that and figure it out in a, in a intellectual way, a cerebral way, I'm still processing this chapter and still sort of feeling it out and finding where are my lessons in it and sort of where are the markers within this Marvel journey that connect to my greater journey just as a human being and as a woman. And um, one of the things I thought was really interesting is I find myself pushing against right now this tough, bad, that's Disney. I know I probably can't say the A word. <laughs> this tough, badass chick thing. Um, I find myself really pushing hard back at it, which I think is really interesting because at the beginning of my career, I was pushing that so hard. You know, I was like, Kate is going to be badass. She is going to be, she's going to keep up with all the guys. She is going to be capable. She is going to be strong. She is not going to be willy nilly emotional and like all these things. And then this whole massive shift happened in the industry where suddenly it was like, those characters are everywhere. Like every female character is beating up a man, is robbing a bank, is saving the world, is like doing these amazing things. And I guess I just must be a contrarian by nature because I think I find myself now going, well, hang on a minute we're also fragile and we're also vulnerable and we're also small and we're also soft and like all these other things that I've been sort of pushing back at for the first 10 years of my career. I find myself now going, whoa, whoa, whoa. We aren't supposed to just be men with boobs. Like what does it mean to be a woman? And that question, what does it mean to be a woman? I think is, extremely universal right now and what I think is beautiful and important and crucial is that we're exploring that through our stories and some of the stories where I've really resonated with what does it mean to be a woman are stories where like I I don't know if you felt this way Vanessa but watching little women Mm, yeah it's so like stereotypical and it feels like you know 24 year old me would have scoffed at myself but I recognized myself in every single one of those characters. And I recognized sisterhood and motherhood and womanhood in that movie. 
And so it's been really interesting and I'm really excited because I can't give anything away, but I think, I think, I suspect my hunch is that I may have manifested something really in that space in the Marvel world with my, with Hope Had Dime, because I think the direction that we're going with her might be very satisfying for me in that way. Um, yeah, I think we just, I, I always am telling girls when I talk to them about the wasp that she's a brilliant scientist. You know, she's not a killing machine. She's a very bright mind and her mind is what is so powerful. Um, and I think that's something that's really attainable for young girls. And I'm also often, you know, find myself talking to parents and saying, don't forget that if your little girl likes ballet and tutus, that is amazing. That is not weak and stupid. That's not lame just because she doesn't want to play with GI Joes and be a superhero. That there's, there is beauty in all versions of woman and all versions of girl and all versions of boy and all versions of man. And let's not forget to continue to make room for the feminine in all of us as we get very excited about women being empowered. You know, so and I, I feel like you, you probably get asked that question a lot because the Ant-Man and the Wasp was that first time, right? And now we've had other films and because of people like Gal Gadot and like Brie Larson, Scarlett Johansson and yourself, what, what's great for being the, the father of a son is that my son now grows up in that world where women can do these things and do do these things. They, he doesn't have to experience that lag of like, why aren't we telling these stories? You know, and then because I love comics, I've, I've been a nerd about comics so long because I love the nuances that the characters bring and the, that type of fragility and that, that type of realness that they can bring to those characters. And so it's just really cool. It's just such a, it's, it's neat as a parent to know that, um, that he's going to grow up in that world as opposed to a world that hadn't been established like that. Two boys. And one of them came out of the womb a chauvinist. (laughs) And I was like, what? How is a son of mine? (laughs) You know, I am, I am, do you know who I am? I am Tori. I am the wasp. You will not, you know, like, no way. And I was like, how in the world, where does this come from? And um, what was incredible was to watch him watch those two characters once he got old enough. And one time, I don't know why, somebody, it was me. Maybe I was testing the waters. I said to him, if a robber broke into our house, who would be the one to protect you, mommy or daddy? And he was like, mommy. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, get it. He's like, mom, you say orcs. And I was like, yes. yes. So good. Yeah. And what's great is they don't, he doesn't differentiate. Like if you ask him, who is your favorite superhero? He, his top superheroes, uh, favorite superheroes, I think are Black Panther, Iron Man, and the Wasp. And like, look at that beautiful spectrum of diversity. And he's not connecting. He's not thinking like, I'm very cool because I'm like, you know, I like a female superhero. It doesn't differentiate. They're just all great. 
And right. Well, that's my my son is uh, really loving the Rocketeer, the series that was on Disney Junior, and uh, she's the granddaughter of the Rocketeer that I came to love in the '90s. So I was <laughs> definitely encouraging this because I was like, I was like, oh my gosh, that's one of my. I mean, these guys know I can. I love the Rocketeer, and uh, <laughs> and so the fact that he loves her, it's it it doesn't it just doesn't matter, and that's that's what's that's what's very cool about that. But Brett, you had our next question. Well, um, do you ever, you know, kind of wake up some days and go, hmm, I was in the highest grossing film of all times. It's Tuesday, you know, I'm like going not to give you angst or anything like that, but but Avengers Endgame is the highest grossing film of all time. And that's great for Marvel and Disney accountants and their bottom line. But how does that affect you as an as an artist, actor, and storyteller? Does it give you opportunity to do more because of that? Or how did that, how does that affect you? Well, luckily for me, or maybe unluckily, I'm not sure, but you know, I was in it for about three seconds. So I take a lot less of the attention and heat and pressure that probably comes with being someone like Iron Man or Captain America or Black Widow. Um, or Scarlet. Um, but I, it definitely, it opens doors. I think it's really interesting that when I am, like I, I'm coming out in a film called Crisis that's about the opioid crisis that we're mm-hmm. currently in and have been for years now. And um, when I'm credited in articles, you know, I'm in it with Gary Oldman and I see Gary Oldman and, um, oh, now I'm blanking on the film that he won the Academy Award for. Darkest and, Hour. Thank you. Dark mm-hmm. Sour. And then Army Hammer, Call Me By Your Name, Evangeline Alert, Lily, Avengers Endgame. And I'm like, really? Is that my <laughs> film? <laughs> oh, okay. Um, but, you know, it's when it's the highest grossing film of all time and you're in it, people are like, check it out. You know, the first one was in that movie and now here she's in this movie. And, um, and so in a lot of professional ways, it's been beautiful and wonderful for me because it means that I can find a script and a director that I think are amazing. And I can say, you know, well, I'd like to be in this film. And there's a way better chance that it will get greenlit, that it will get the money it needs. And that's the kind of ugly business of what we do. Um, On the flip side, there's the whole like social media and attention aspect of it, which has been really interesting. I was very late to the social media game because I um, am, I'm Lillaford deep down inside. I'm like an 80 year old woman inside who is super resistant to technology and change. And um, by the time I got on social media, um, I was in this really quiet respite of my career where I had kind of retired and had a baby and I wasn't really pursuing um, anything at the time or like in anything big at the time. Um, except the Hobbit. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. That. But it wasn't, well, it wasn't like lost, right? It wasn't, it wasn't what the crazy that was lost. And um, and I and I had this beautiful little following of 150,000 people on Facebook. And it was like, I swear I knew almost every name of every person that followed me on Facebook. And every interaction I had was beautiful discourse, like two human beings seeing each other and wanting to really connect on a real level. And so we could talk about something and get excited about it, or we could talk about something and disagree and like really respectfully discuss it and have this amazing discourse and have this real community feeling. 
And then <laughs> um, through the Marvel Universe was the first when Ant-Man and the Wasp, when I was touring was when I first hit a million followers. And now I'm at 2.2 million followers. And while that feels really great, cause it's like, oh, how cool. Like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm being very recognized um, and I appreciate it. There is this totally different atmosphere where people are just sort of there because they love Avengers or they're mm -hmm. there because they love the comic books or they're there because there's a hundred reasons they could be there other than me. And so what happens is it's just a much less caring and nurturing environment. There's a lot more kind of toxicity, more trolls, more negativity. And I am always like my game I like to play on social media is if somebody trolls me, um, my challenge to myself is how many interactions will it take me to turn them around? And in my experience, it never takes more than two. Um, and I think that the, the key for there is always that I always begin by saying, I really appreciate that you just told me that. I really appreciate that you're sharing your opinion here. And this is a space where everybody's opinion is okay. I don't agree. And this is why I don't agree. But once again, thank you. And um, and that's sort of a weird thing that I feel like gets lost once you get to a certain point or like a film makes a certain amount of money is you just lose that kind of intimate, beautiful discourse. And it becomes this sort of polarized dynamic that you see in sort of the world at large and less of a feeling of community in, in my fan base or, you know, even in the media world and, and more, uh, you know, extremes and that kind of toxicity. So, yeah. Yeah, it would be, uh, well, you're, you're managing, even with that answer, you're managing everything so well. So congratulations for that. And on your personal growth, because I mean, you're doing a good, you, you know, you're now you've become my new role model. So, <laughs> but I, I do, I, I do have, um, sorry to be, you know, talk about, you know, Marvel again, but I did have, I did have a question, you know, because actually the three of us met through community theater. So we do some acting, you know, on a very small scale, Whoa. but, um, but what was, you know, when I think of the Tony Stark Endgame funeral, you know, I mean, I mean, you hear stories of, you know, well, it was supposed to be a wedding. It was supposed to be this, you know, I mean, but, but you look at all of those actors and to find out that they were actually together. Is that true? And uh, <laughs> what, was that, what was that like? Cause it was kind of, I mean, you probably didn't shoot in sequence or anything like that, but that moment you all came together for, you know, this, you know, this, this ultimate moment in the film, what was that? You know, what was that like as an actor working with all of those people? And, you know, I mean, your parents are Michelle Pfeiffer and <laughs> Michael Douglas, you know, you I'm like, going, remind me. I'm you, know, <laughs> going, you know, I'm like, going, the people and there's, and, you know, I mean, it's just amazing. Uh, but anyway, what was that like as an actor? Well, as, as I said at the beginning, as like a kid who didn't, I really didn't watch a lot of movies or TV growing up. I didn't really pay attention to magazines. Like I just wasn't. I, I, I had never been starstruck in my life before. I'd never been someone who was like, oh, I want to meet a famous person. None of that. None of that. And that was a pinch me moment in my life. That was a moment where I was like, what am I doing here? This is insane. These are like 40 of the most famous 
people in Hollywood and somehow I'm here? What? And I'm here in the coolest group of them all. I'm Michelle Pfeiffer and Michael Douglas. And that was like, you can't, you know, what are you going to do? How are you going to beat that? And I was just like, I was very, it's one of those rare times because I'm, I'm a bit hard to get to, I guess, but those rare times where I was pinching myself and just really taking mental pictures going, this is cool. Like the fact that you got to be a part of this is amazing. Don't miss a moment. So, you know, between takes, some actors would just go off to their trailers and probably take phone calls or do whatever. The entire time I worked on Endgame, the entire time that that particular day of shooting, but every time, every day, I would just be out and mingling and talking and connecting. And like, I didn't want to miss a minute of it. It was a unique experience that may never happen again in my life. And probably won't. And and so few people in the world got to be a part of. So I was very, it was very cool. That's very, thank you for sharing. That's good to know. Yeah, that's good to know. Because it's just, yeah, cool. Well, you you know, and I I guess my... By the way, for the record, are wonderful. There really aren't bad eggs in Marvel. They really pick good people. Like, I think that's Mm -hmm. important to Kevin and Lewis who run the company. They... I think they really like if you're a bad egg, they'll just get rid of you. They don't mm-hmm. want that in their company. And that's such a treat because often companies only care about the bottom line and what you bring in. And the beauty of Marvel being so successful and so powerful is they don't need that. They just want to work with good people. So it was also a lovely experience. Yeah, that's wonderful to know. And it, uh, so this is one of my last questions or my final question is uh, oh, no. we'll talking about that. Well, well, this hour has gone by so quickly. And we're <laughs> so again, thankful for your time. You. Um, but, you know, when interacting at Comic Cons with fans, uh, whether that be at D23 or uh, other Comic Cons that you've attended, you you really are like geek royalty at this point. You have an ama- amazing TV show that everyone knows you from. You are in a J.R.R. Tolkien property. You <laughs> are in a Marvel Cinematic Universe. Uh, what is it like interacting with those fans in that setting? Is it... Um, is it off-putting like the kind of the cattle call type of situation or do you get some really good interactions with fans while you're in that setting as well or in panels? I always expect it to be like really off-putting mania Mm -hmm. because I go, Oh, this is scary because I've done too many of these things. People are going to be crazy. (laughs) Um, And I, always and I've done a lot of them now because um I tour with the squicker wonkers and we go to cons um and I and I find that um I'm just always surprised at how possible it is to have real meaningful human interactions with people in these environments and what I've kind of realized is that like it's up to that person and me And that means I'm 50% of the equation. So again, similar to the way I initially reacted to fame and with like fear and discomfort, if I'm comfortable and I want to talk to them like a normal person, like I genuinely feel like, who are you? Like, hi, not like, okay, God, here, take your signature and go away. They 
settle into a place of just being their normal self instead of that heightened discomfort of like, I don't know what to say and I don't know what to do with myself. Oh God. You know, like it, it, it doesn't become that. And I've actually had some of the most beautiful fan interactions of my career at cons where, you know, people save up all year to go to these things and have these experiences And I struggle as somebody who wanted to be in what I would have at the time, my young adult year is called meaningful work, right? Like saving the world, helping the less fortunate, like doing really important work. I sometimes struggle with like, what am I doing with my life? Like, is this helping? Is this, am I leaving the world better than I found it in any way? And sometimes it's cons that remind me that, yeah, that this stuff isn't just entertainment. It's not just fluff. That for some people in some moments and in some times of their life and in some ways, this stuff is really impacting people in a really positive way. And I've held people while they sobbed on my shoulders and told me about loved ones dying in the hospital. And the only thing that kept them happy in their last days was watching seasons one to six of Lost in a row and back to back over and over. And like, uh, somehow I kept them company. That's incredible. And right now, while we're in a time where people are alone and suffering in hospitals without their loved ones, like to me, that's the worst travesty we can inflict on a person is when you're dying or you're suffering and you can't have your spouse or your parent. Like I can't make sense of what's going on right now in that space. And, and sometimes I think, well, maybe you can be with them like, in like an indirect way. Um, yeah. But if I didn't go to things where I actually meet my fans, then I think it'd be really easy for it to all feel really hollow and empty because the industry can be really hollow and empty. You know, it can be all about the bottom line. You just start feeling like, what are we doing here? And what does it matter until you talk to people? So um, yeah, I like cons. That's great. Uh, you know, I'll tell you, we have, um, we've, we've, it's, it's a little after two o'clock for you. And uh, we do have a couple more questions if you have time, but if not, that's totally fine. I, we don't want to keep I'm you. Okay. I'm okay. okay. I'm, I always like apologize in advance in interviews. I always tell people I'm very verbose. <laughs> so you won't. Well, no, it, like this is, this is absolutely the most incredible interview we've ever been able to have. I mean, just, oh, it's just, it, it, it really like you, you are, you are so open and so wonderful and amazing. Uh, but Brett, mm-hmm. if you want to ask yours and then uh, Vanessa, if you wanted to do the rapid fire questions okay. and then I think we're all good. So sure. Brett, you had a question. Well, okay. Since we are a Disney podcast and we're always looking for a new Disney park edition and, and I'm sure you've heard that Pim Test Kitchen, your Pim family culinary contribution to Avengers Campus at Disney California Adventure. The material says, the promotional material says Ant-Man and the Wasp lead a team of research chefs as they pioneer a menu packed with inventive size entrees, tiny <laughs> treats, and shareable bites that provide the perfect power-up. So are you looking forward to some taste testing at Avengers Campus sometime? Oh my gosh, you are the first person to deliver this news to me. <laughs> I knew that there was a Ant-Man and the Wasp 
amusement park ride in Hong Kong. But I did yes. not know uh-huh. that we were, and you know, when we were touring for Ant Man and the Wasp, um, Paul and I did this great little bit. I, I don't know if he liked doing it, but I loved doing it. We had this like little mini kitchen and we made mini meals together. <laughs> you can find yes. the videos on YouTube. It was it was silly but fun. So yeah, this is news to me. Now I'm gonna have to now we have to make sure I find check out. it out. Yes, yeah, see if that out. premiere or you know the previews and all that. I'm like going um. This needs to be, you know, WASP approved here. I mean, hello. Yes. So, yeah. That's cool, though. Well, now you have something and something else to look forward to when when the situation has improved. So. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and Vanessa, yeah. you had some rapid fire questions for us. Yeah. So these are just quick questions. Uh, feel free to answer as quickly as you need to. Uh, favorite Disney animated film? Mm-hmm. Animated film. You can pick more than one if you want. You don't. Have I know that because that's really hard. That's really, really hard. Gosh. I know I'm going to disappoint myself because I'm going to say one and then later I'll be like, that's not your favorite. This one. <laughs> so obviously this one. Um, but I'm just going to say what first jumped to mind because they're supposed to be rapid fire, which is Pocahontas um, is the first one that jumped to mind. But I feel like. I know that's not right. I love <laughs> Moana so much. Yeah. Um, there's so many good ones, but there are. So that's Lion good. King is way up there. Yeah. Yeah. All good choices. Okay. Well, yeah. we'll move on to hopefully this next one might be a little easier. Um, favorite Disney attraction? Disneyland. Does it is have there, to be the one within Disneyland? Yeah. Is there any like specific ride or show that oh. is your favorite? Well, when I was little, it was, it's a small world after all. And now it would be a toss up between um, the elevator one. Yeah. Guardians of the Galaxy, That's Mission Breakout. for me. <laughs> You're making me feel much better now that I didn't know the name. Yeah. And- well, Van- it, it really, Vanessa has a traumatic experience with that particular attraction. So I think you're giving her. I shouldn't have even asked this question. Yeah. <laughs> Fetal position. We have pictures, you know. So. Mm-hmm. Oh. I had a traumatic experience on um, the, the log ride, the one that. Splash Mountain? Uh, Splash Mountain. Yeah, Splash Mountain. When I was 12, it was the most traumatizing thing that happened to me. <laughs> Mm. Yeah, it can be because when you're little, they tell you to put your hands up, and that is just terrifying. But no, they tell you it's a ride for little kids, and um, <laughs> and then they plummet to your death at the end. I was twelve, and I was terrified. But I was, I was like really anti, uh, like ride amusement park ride, roller coaster, all of that. I wasn't into any, any, any of it until I was on tour with Lost and. I think we were at Disney World and they were like, you should go on this roller coaster. It was the biggest one in the park. And I was like, I don't do roller coasters. But then I was with Matthew Fox and Dominic Monaghan and they were both razzing me. And, you know, I was at that ball she tough, like no guys do anything better than me stage of my life. And so I was like, all right, I did it. And it was the best. So from then on, I've now loved roller coasters. Oh, awesome. That's great. I told you I'm verbose. These like rapid fire ones, good luck with me. I, That's I okay. Talking. just have a couple more. Um, <laughs> do, you have, do you have a favorite Disney snack? Does Disney make snacks? 
Well, I mean, they have uh, like certain meals, like they have Dole Whip or uh, turkey legs. And sometimes among fans, it can, it can be contentious. So, Wow. Well, I'm going to disappoint the heck out of you and say I eat from like local farmers and stuff. <laughs> I have, like, we're like totally super okay. not processed food in my house. Sorry. That's that totally okay. okay. <laughs> um, do you have a favorite Disney character that, that you love? Well, see, now this is where I got, like, was, like, struggling with the favorite Disney movie, because when I'm asked, what's your favorite Disney princess, I always say Pocahontas, but that's different than your overall favorite Disney movie. Um, I, uh, Blue is, of course, way up there. Oh, you just made Brett a very happy man. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Um, who else? Oh, okay. When I was young, this is a great confess. When I was young, I had such a crush on the kid who voiced young Simba. Like, oh, Jonathan, Jonathan Taylor, Taylor Thomas. Thomas. Yeah, I had such a crush. <laughs> so I was so in love with with Simba when I was little. I was like, oh, it's such a heartthrob. I was also really, really in love with Aladdin when I was little. But I'm gonna say Baloo. Excellent. I think I kind of married him, so that's cool. <laughs> <laughs> hey, that worked out. So yeah. <laughs> and then one final question, um, and this is a little bit deeper, so it doesn't have to be so rapid. Um, what qualities would you like to see in the next Disney princess, prince, or next leading character? Any thoughts? Well, whew, um, hmm. One of my favorite things about Moana was that, aside from all of the amazing things about her, was that her body looked like the body of young women I see around me in Hawaii. And I felt like I felt like they were being honored. I felt like their body was being accepted. Um, I still really struggle with the way female bodies are shaped in these very impressionable movies. So more of that would be amazing. More moving towards uh, Disney feminine heroes, female heroes who look like the women in our lives instead of, uh, you know, unattainable goals. I could not agree more. So thank you. That That is the end of our rapid fire. Hopefully it wasn't uh, too challenging, but we really enjoyed your answers. I'm just going to give myself a great big fail on the rapid part of it, but I think I was on fire. I was going to say I was You on were fire. on fire. You were yes. on fire. And thank you so much. We've come to the, the end of our time together. And I feel like I have learned so much during this last hour. And uh, we're so grateful to you. And of course, we're all going to be looking forward to what you have next coming to the screen. You know, we got a title for your next film, Man, Man and the Wasp, Quantumania. Um, but we are also looking forward to what the Squicker Wonkers are going to be up to and following your career and your passion with you and that writing that you do so thank you so much well if you want to follow the squicker wonkers on instagram it's at the squicker wonkers and if you want to get email notices when i come out with a new publication because they're pretty far between it takes a long time to make one of these books you can sign up to the squicker club at the squickerwonkers.com 
And I sell all of the books off of the squickerwalkers.com and that's where you can find signed books if anyone's looking for signed books. That's fantastic. That's and I'll be heading yes. there right after this. So, <laughs> so thank you again for your time. My shameless plug. Sorry, I had to get it oh, in. That's okay. No, that's okay. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thank you guys so much. It was such a pleasure. Your questions were so thoughtful and uh, you guys were just an absolute delight to speak with today. We really thank appreciate you. it so much. Wow. What, what I appreciated about that experience that we just had was how real that conversation was and how she was so open to talking about uh, the ideas of celebrity, but also parenting and life. Um, there's so many lessons that I can take from this conversation with her and it, just incredible, so gracious with her time, uh, so gracious with her experiences and how she conveyed those experiences to us. Just remarkable. Uh, Vanessa, I'm going to go to you first. Your thoughts on the conversation we just had. Wow. Um, she's wonderful. She's, uh, I've watched her interviews in advance and I, I thought she was authentic and charming, but she truly is. And I think you can tell that she has a great depth for empathy and that ability and I, I think of that as a skill I often say that to people that you're that is a sometimes a hard skill for some people to have and she has a great depth of empathy and I think that comes through in her her writing um her because people can write children's stories but she seems to have done it with a lot of intention and um, good intention with the books. And it's, she's just so creative and her, her mind really is amazing. I, I could have listened to her tell me more about the squicker wonkers and, and her kind of her life mentality and the lessons she's learned. I could have listened to that for hours because it, it's, it, it just touches so deep. Um, and, and many of the things she said is really resonating. And I, I, really enjoy I mean she I, I'm not a huge Marvel fan as 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 Craig is often telling me what happens in the Marvel universe because I, I miss some things but I can I think I can fully say now the wasp is my favorite Marvel person ever 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 right ever. Brett, Brett, your thoughts well you know it's so interesting she was talking about when she was at um comic cons and that sort of thing the interaction with with her fans is that, you know, her intention is to make them feel comfortable so they can have a very authentic experience. Well, clearly she is good at it because that's what happened today. So when she's talking about that nonfiction book that she wants to write, oh. I can't wait to read that because I'm like going, she has in, in a, in a wonderful way of storytelling, she has, you know, she has wonderful advice and, you know, by example. And so I can't wait for that. It was I I'm almost at a panic, Brett, because I'm like, I don't know if I can go on anymore in my life without having a book. <laughs> you I have to wait have for that. Yet, but you I feel like skip I a squicker wonker and move to that and then back to a squicker wonker. Yeah, I mean, I could throw in Squicker Wonker. I love that too, but I need this nonfiction book and I need it now. <laughs> yes, as soon as we can, yes. Mm -hmm. And I, I have to just tell you, um, when I came to the Squicker Wonkers, it, it was such a 
fun and slightly dark story. Uh, but then what really did it for me was listening to the books on Audible. So I would highly suggest that you go and track these down. Uh, she didn't narrate the prologue, but she's done the act one, two, and three, which are three of the Squicker Wonker stories. And she does all the voice work and it, it's just wonderful. It is so cool. Uh, if you're a member to Audible, they're very reasonably priced. Even if you're a non-member to Audible, they're very reasonably priced. Um, and you can listen to these and hear her voice. And you can really tell the love that she puts into these characters. And maybe you came to this interview thinking about her as from her acting career. Certainly uh, we wouldn't blame you for that, but you really need to check out her writing site as well, because as she mentioned in the interview, this is a true passion of hers and it's wonderful to check out any final thoughts. Uh, I'll go to Brett first with final thoughts. I was a fan before and now I'm uh, even a, a, a bigger fan because she was because of her intention in her work and in her life is just uh, is just amazing and exemplary, you know. So many lessons to learn. So can't wait for what's next. Yeah, Vanessa. I think one of the big takeaways um, from this episode is that here is Evangeline Lilly at a very young age, wanting to go out and make the world a better place. And that path didn't go the way she expected, but she is making the world a better place by what she does creatively and, and how she connects with people. And I think that just goes to show that no matter where you are in life, no matter what path you're on, whatever your story is, you can make that difference in your own way. And that's something really aspiring to work to and to keep in mind as we navigate all these difficulties and the difficult time we're in is that we can all make the world a little bit better. I know this sounds cliche, but it really is true. It really is true that in your own way and whatever you are doing, you do make a difference. And I think that that's such a perfect note to end on. I mean, I can't, I can't add to that. I can't add to what Evangeline said, uh, but I can tell you that if you'd like to continue listening to us, you can subscribe to Beyond the Mouse wherever you find podcasts. And of course, you can find us on nprillinois.org as well. We are part of the Front Row Network, and we uh, also are very active on social media. So come check us out on Beyond the Mouse podcast on Facebook, also Beyond the Mouse pod on Instagram. We are on Twitter now beyond mouse so check us out there as well and uh just get all the new updates because we did do this announcement that we were having evangeline lily on uh first on our social media page so you want to make sure you follow along there and check us out and thank you so much for your support and thank you so much for listening to these episodes and these amazing interviews that we've had the opportunity to have uh it's just been so incredible next week we can say that we are celebrating Vanessa's sort of birthday and it's going to be a lot of fun uh, watching while you were sleeping. So maybe in the intermediate time between now and next week, check out the film while you were sleeping on Disney plus. Yeah, because if you don't, in. I'm just going to, the episode's basically me doing every single line from the movie. So it's basically going to be that if you, you don't. <laughs> No spoilers at all, but she's so good. And we're celebrating her birthday. Heavy spoilers. Yes. So good. Well, 
Thank you again so much to Evangeline, especially if you're listening back. We are so appreciative of this. Uh, Thank you for your work, not only as an actress, but also as a writer and your passion. It's truly remarkable what you've done and what you continue to do in your career. So thank you. For Beyond the Mouse, I am Craig. I'm Vanessa. And I'm Brett. And we will see you real soon in the front row. Wow, just incredible. <sighs> no words. Heavy sigh. No so good. Thank no you. No words. Thank you. Just a big thank you. Yeah. Feeling thank great. you, Evangeline Lily. <laughs> <laughs>